If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open them with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And then for tonight, we're going to be in just verses 1 to 7. So I know the past few messages, we've taken like a whole chapter at a time, but we're only going to take seven verses tonight. So a bit of a shorter section. But I think there's a lot for us uh, to learn still from, from these verses. So Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 to 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter, utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. God, as we open your word now, um, we do ask that you would help us to approach you with the proper reverence and awe. That is the the topic of this passage for tonight, uh, that when we come before you, we you call us to, to guard our steps, to be careful with our words, um, because you are God in heaven and we're here on earth. And so help us to approach you in the right way. I pray especially during the season where uh, church just looks so different, God, that it's easy to, to just take it for granted to not think about these things. And so I pray that this time would uh, equip us well and that we would be humble before your word and that you would give us ears to listen. And so bless our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you uh, to, I'm going to start with the question, or I guess a, a thought exercise. I want you to think about your Sunday morning routine. Okay, what does your Sunday morning routine look like? Uh, what do you do? Um... How is it different now during COVID versus before when we were meeting in person? Maybe for you, now you don't have to put on your Sunday clothes, right? You watch service and you're like still in your pajamas. You're sitting on your couch. Maybe you have a blanket. Um, Maybe now you're multitasking. So you have like, I don't know, football or something else on the TV. uh, And there's just something else going on. Nowadays, there's no more carpooling to church. There's no more walking into the lighthouse foyer. There is no more making yourself a name tag, walking into that darkened sanctuary where you hear the worship team practicing. There's no more feeling that anticipation of service starting. Right now, you just kind of wake up, you just turn on your TV or your computer, and there's like no buildup, there's no anticipation, right? You just, it's instant. And so a lot has changed. Um, and then, of course, for, for others of you, a lot of things haven't changed. Like, for some of you, you still don't comb your hair. You still don't put on a pair of pants. And somehow, you still show up during the offering song. But a lot has changed for most of us, right, between before and now. And as a result, a lot has changed with how we personally or we individually engage in Sunday service. And I would guess that uh, maybe a lot has changed in like in not a good way, right? In, in a bad way. 
And uh, I admit that I am right there with you, okay? Like I struggle in the same way. I know for myself, I definitely need to be more disciplined about setting that Sunday service, uh, Sunday worship apart. Like a lot of times for myself, I like I haven't showered yet. I haven't changed yet. Um, I'm like watching Pastor David's call to worship as I'm like standing in my kitchen making my coffee. Uh, so I like I'm right there with you. I get it. Uh, let me ask you this. If someone were to watch a video of all of that, right, to a video of your Sunday morning routine, what would it say about the kind of posture that you have when you approach God? Like if they watched a video of that, how would they describe your attitude when you enter into worship? Now, of course, worship and our posture before God, it goes far beyond our Sunday morning worship service, right? That's not all that worship is. Um, and I asked that question not like meant to be a guilt trip for you guys. But my point is that how we approach the corporate worship of God, I think especially during this season, how we approach that says a lot about how we view God and how we view ourselves. Uh, here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the, the preacher is starting to move from, uh, so far he's, he's given us his observation of life. Right? He's looked at life, uh, or what he's called life under the sun. And here in chapter 5, he's moving from observation to instruction. And in these coming chapters, uh, it's almost going to sound like we're in the Proverbs a little bit. He's just going to give us a bunch of seemingly random advice or wisdom on how to live. And if you think back to this tour that the preacher has taken us on, he's taken us from the courtroom right at the end of chapter 3 to the workplace in chapter 4 that we looked at last time. And now in chapter 5, he's taking us to church. Okay, and the way that he puts it in verse 1 is if you look at it, he says, when you go to the house of God. Okay, in other words, when you go to church or, or right now, when you tune into the worship service on Sundays, when you prepare to be together with God's people, I think we can expand it even more broadly into like any kind of religious activity. Okay, when you approach God, when you come before him, what are we supposed to do? Preacher says, when you go to the house of God, guard your steps. Proceed with caution. Be careful. Let me ask you, is that what your Sunday morning routine looks like? And if not, then do you see how important or how relevant this passage is for us? I think especially for a time such as this. More specifically, in these verses, the preacher is going to focus on how we use our words. Okay, our posture before God is going to be demonstrated in our words. And hopefully, as we read through these verses, you, you caught some of that. Right In verse 1, he says, draw near to listen. Uh, verse 2, he says, don't be rash with your mouth. Uh, don't be hasty to utter a word before God. Let your words be few. Right, So on and so on. You see that all throughout verses 1 to 7. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Bible has a lot to say about the significance of our words. Our words reveal what's going on in our, going on in our hearts. If you were with us last year, we went through the book of James, and it was all over the book of James. We learned that words are powerful, that they're like a bridle in a horse's mouth, um, or they're like the rudder on a ship. Uh, we also learned that if, if words are not accompanied with action, then they're, they're empty, they're meaningless. 
James says, what good is it to say that you have saving faith or what good is it to say that uh, be warmed and be filled without following it up with some action? And so maybe the, the theme verse of the book of James is, he says, uh, in response to the word of God, he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Okay, so we see that all throughout the Bible, even in the book of James that we studied last year. And I think that message is not too far off from the message of our passage tonight. Okay, that our attitude of worship before God is demonstrated in our words. And so when you come before him, how careful are you to speak and how ready are you to listen? Now I want to ask this question, why is this message or why is this lesson here in Ecclesiastes, right? If it's all throughout the Bible already, then what is Ecclesiastes kind of contribute to this? What's the Ecclesiastes flavor to this lesson? Uh, what is going to church have to do with vanity of life under the sun? And to answer that question, we have to think about how this passage fits in with what we've talked about so far. Okay, so think back to what we've talked about already. Remember, one thing that we said is that uh, life is short, right? Life is just here and it's gone. And the brevity of life and the reality of death, it doesn't make everything meaningless, right? It actually makes everything more meaningful. Think about it. If God has sovereignly appointed a day when you were born and he has appointed a day when you will die, and you know that between those two points in time that he has appointed for you the number of words that you will utter, for some of us more, for some of us less, then every single word counts. Every single word matters. And the preacher, he has already said this about all that we do in life. He said this back in Ecclesiastes 3.17. He said, um, God is going to judge. There's going to be a time for every matter and every work under the sun. Jesus himself, he says this about our words uh, in Matthew 12.36. He says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Okay, so we, we see that all throughout the Bible. Our words matter. And in Ecclesiastes, they matter, especially in light of the brevity of life. I think there's also a few connections between our passage tonight and what we saw last time in chapter 4. Okay, so for example, in chapter 4, uh, we learned about how we're supposed to re- relate to others, right? How we're supposed to love our neighbor, um, and here in chapter five, these first seven verses, we learn about how we are supposed to relate to God. In chapter four, we talked about this kind of like restless busyness that characterizes people, that characterizes relationships in this fallen world. You guys remember that? Uh, we, we saw that vain toil that uh, the preacher even says, like all your work, all skill comes from your envy of your neighbor. And so we're just in this like endless competition with one another. And maybe you guys recognize the reality of that in your own life. We're just so busy, endlessly busy. Well, the preacher says that that busyness, that happens at church too. I mean, for some of you, like you're involved in small groups. Here, you're here at Beacon, you're in AACF. Some of you serve on core or in other capacities. Um, on like, besides all of that, like formal ministry, you have like informal ministry, right? You guys like do meetups and stuff. Our spiritual lives are very busy. This is how one commentator describes it. He says, Christians, too, often inhabit all too noisy space. Their noise is more religious, perhaps, but it is still noise. Worship services provide little opportunity for, uh, little opportunity for silent awe in the presence of God 
but plenty of opportunity for performance on the part of a select few professional speakers and musicians who fill all the space with their words and sounds. Other gatherings of the church are characterized by relentless activity. It is Christian activity, of course, but it still fills the space that might be taken by silent adoration. Thus, church comes to resemble simply another form of human group endeavor. You know, what gets lost in all of that noise, what gets lost in all of that religious busyness is the fact that God actually cares more about the kind of people that we are and the kind of lives that we live. In chapter 4, we saw, uh, we saw how we can so often oppress and we can so often mistreat neighbor. And then here in chapter 5, we show up at church as if everything is okay. And that is exactly what the Bible warns against, specifically oppression. Uh, the, the Old Testament prophets talk about that. The Pharisees in the New Testament, they were guilty of that. And so that's the danger that our passage is warning us against, this kind of hypocrisy and empty and meaningless religion. What does it look like to turn from this false worship of like relationships, of wealth, of achievement, of all these th- earthly things, and to turn to the true worship of God? What is your posture and what is your attitude when you come before God as demonstrated in your words? That's the question that this passage is asking us. And so I want to look at this in two parts. Okay, two appropriate ways to approach the worship of God. Two appropriate ways to approach the worship of God. One is listen more and say less. Okay, one, listen more, two, say less. We'll start with number one, listen more. Uh, Look at verse one. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Okay, in both of these sections, our passage breaks up pretty evenly into two two halves. And in both of these halves, you're going to see kind of a similar structure. Okay, you're going to see a command that is uh, positively stated. So in this first half, it's guard your steps. Right? And then you're going to see a command that is negatively stated. Uh, in this example, is be not rash with your mouth. And then you're going to see a summarizing proverb, and that's in verses 3 and 7. Uh, and so you have this same idea that is stated in different ways, but verses 1 to 3 here have to do with hasty speech before God. Uh, the preacher says, let your words be few. Right? He's saying that you don't approach the house of God, uh, much less God himself, as if you're just going through the motions. Okay, you don't approach him just as if you're just paying lip service. To do that, the preacher says, is the sacrifice of fools in verse 2. Um, that, that's talking about this careless, this cavalier observance of worship. Right? These people, they think that they're doing something super holy in the eyes of other people, uh, but they don't realize that their sacrifice, right? that's a religious term, that their sacrifice is actually evil. And in fact, they're, they're so used to playing this game that they don't even realize what's going on anymore. They don't even know that they're doing wrong. And so the preacher says, don't be a fool. Guard your steps. That's talking about your conduct. And then he says, watch your mouth. He's talking about your words. Take God seriously. And we see what it looks like to, to rightly come before the presence of God all throughout the Bible, don't we? 
Um, I think of Moses when he sees the burning bush in Exodus 3.5 and God says to him, you guys know this, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Or Isaiah 6 is another famous passage. Uh, The prophet gets this vision of God in the temple and one glimpse at that in Isaiah is like, woe is me, right? He wants to die. He becomes completely undone. That's what, he's ta- that's what the preacher is talking about here. He's saying, you better recognize what you're doing and who it is that you're approaching because this needs to inform your attitude. This needs to inform your priorities. Uh, this informs how you think about yourself. How does it do that? I want to look specifically at two ideas. Okay, so first is to know your purpose. It informs our purpose. This passage teaches us that our main purpose when we come before God is to listen. It is to listen. It's not to give, but to receive. To listen to God is our primary task in worship. Uh, To worship him is to be addressed by him. And so we learn here, we guard our mouths by opening our ears. I want you to think about church and the times that we gather together for service. Like even right now, like what are we doing right now? Right? It's not a time for the people um, on stage or who are serving to showcase their talents or their abilities. Uh, sure, when we come together, like, yeah, we are looking to encourage one another. We are looking to be encouraged. But most fundamentally, the most important thing that we're doing is coming to listen to God speak to us. And we know that God speaks to us through the preaching of his word. That's why the sermon is so central in our time together. That it's through his word that God speaks and we listen. And if you think about it, spiritual pride and sin gets that backwards. Sin and pride says, I speak and God, you listen. And so Beacon, do you approach your times of worship ready to listen? And do you prepare yourself Like, I'm about to hear from God himself. Honestly, I think the challenge for most of us here in corporate worship, I don't don't think it is that, like, we think we're here to give rather than to receive. I think especially right now, right? There's just more limited opportunities where we can kind of tangibly serve. Um, I think that does show up in subtle ways, and we'll talk about that in the next point. But I feel like a bigger challenge for many of us right now has to do with how we listen. Okay, and I think... I hate to say this, but college students are notorious for this. But it's not just you guys. I think we all get this, right? We have this, we we pick and choose what we like, what we don't like about the worship songs. We we pick and choose what we don't like or what we like or don't like about the preacher, all kinds of stuff. We have this consumeristic attitude where we set ourselves above the things of God rather than humbly submit ourselves under what God is saying. Guys, do you remember what James said? He said, you cannot separate hearing God's word from doing it. He says, if you do that, you're like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and you just walk away and you forget what you saw. He says, you are deceiving yourself if you do that. And so ask yourself, are you applying God's word in your life? Because that is a true measure of whether you're listening or not. You know, if you were an Israelite in the Old Testament, every single day, morning and evening, you would recite this prayer that's, that's called the Shema. And Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or listen. Um, and this is what you would pray. This comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, if it sounds familiar. But this, you would pray, Hear, O Israel, 
the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Did you get all of that? First of all, there's one God, right, who you are to love with this undivided love. Uh, it says, with all your heart, soul, and might. And so that means like no uh, no compartments in your life, right? No playing games, no such thing as being Sunday Christians. There's one God who demands all of your life, but there's something that comes first, right? It says, hear, O Israel. Hear what he has to say. And even more than that, do whatever you can to help you listen, to remember what he has said. It says, tie his words on your hands, on your head, write them on your doors, get those words on your heart however you can. So Beacon, is that your attitude when it comes to listening to God each day? And you think to yourself, I need to be in the word because I need to hear from him. I mean, as you think about all of your, your spiritual busyness, serving, attending fellowship, meeting up with people, uh, accountability, all of that is good stuff. But in all of that, is there a healthy balance of making sure that you are, are first and foremost hearing and listening from God himself? And so, Beacon, what are one or, one or two things you can do to listen well during this season? And I know there are some of you that watch um, Sunday service together on Zoom. So thank you to the few of you that, that organize that each week. Maybe that's one thing you, you can do, right, to help you to listen well. Um, I remember in college, some people would always say, uh, maybe you've heard this, right? They say, Sunday morning starts Saturday night. And for some reason, those, like, those people are always in, in GOC, not WACF, because um, they're godlier than us. But... What is, what is that version, like, what is your version of that? That Sunday morning starts Saturday night. It doesn't have to be that specifically, right? But what is like one piece of wisdom that you can apply to help you listen well? What would that look like you or look like for you right now? Uh, David Gibson, I think he summarizes it well. He says, the ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. We need someone to tell us to listen because we want to look and speak more than we want to listen. When it comes to relating to God, we are out of order as far as using our sense organs goes. The things we see and the things we can touch dominate the way that we perceive reality. So as we move on, there is a reason for why we listen. Right? Look at what he, uh, what he says in verse 2. He says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. What is the reason? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Okay, that's why. And that leads us to uh, point B, which is know your place. Okay, know your place. Um, the second idea is related to the first. And it's related in this way that we listen well when we recognize who it is that is speaking to us. And that's a basic idea, right? That's true in our human relationships too. Like some of you guys are super bad at 
responding to your text messages. But if it's from that girl or that guy that you're interested in, like all of uh, all of a sudden, it's like this immediate response, right? Um, and and not only that, but you're analyzing what they said too. Right? You're like, why did what did they mean by dot 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 after you know this at the end of their sentence? We listen well when we recognize who it is that is speaking to us. And here the preacher says, when you realize that, that God is in heaven and that you are on earth, then you will listen well. And you will shut your mouth and you will listen. And that, that phrase there, that God is in heaven and you are on earth, he's talking about the gap that exists between us and God. Right? The gap that exists between the creator and us as his creatures, us as his creation. So do you know your place before the God who is in heaven? Uh, A.W. Tozer, he famously said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So far in Ecclesiastes, we've already seen how life under the sun is frustrating. Right? It's perplexing. Uh, it's, it's confusing. It escapes our grasp and our understanding and our control that we can work as hard as we, as we can, and yet we cannot guarantee certain outcomes. Right? That's just how life is. And we've learned that that reality, reality is supposed to drive us in humble dependence to God, right? That is what it's supposed to do, drive us to turn to God. And we've already mentioned um, this example multiple times, but this means that we need to be careful with our words. We need to be careful with our advice when we're walking with a friend who's suffering. I mean, do we really think that we, we know enough that we can boil all of their life and all of their circumstances down to just like a few reasons or a few like spiritual lessons. Do we really have that knowledge and that perspective? And the preacher says, no, God is in heaven and you are on earth. And so maybe, just maybe it's a better idea to just listen to them, right? Just to be with them before you try to fix things. Knowing our place before God, it not only teaches us to guard our mouths, but it also leads us to this deeper trust and dependence on God. Um, so far in chapters one to four, the, the preacher has given us a lot of observation, like we said, right? We've, we've seen those words a lot. I have seen, right? I have seen the vanity of life. I've seen people go about and do this. I have seen that, come, that comes, up, uh, comes up a lot. And I, I think what we can take from that is that there's a lot that we can learn about the reality of life, right? If we would just... Uh, sometimes put our distractions down and we would just look honestly at the world around us. There's a lot that we can learn about just how things are. But it can't be our eyes only because then how do we make sense of everything? How do we learn to live wisely despite life's frustrations? And the answer to that is we learn, like we said, by listening to God's word. God's word is what helps us to make sense of God's world. Now, we use our ears for God's word alongside our eyes in God's world. We use our ears for God's word alongside our eyes in God's world. Uh, let me just give you an obvious, obvious example of this, I, which is suffering. I'm thankful for the pastors at Lighthouse that they've shepherded us so well when it comes to a theology of suffering. But you guys know, right, when life is hard, that that is all you see. That is all that you can uh, experience. That's, that's all you know at that moment, right? That circumstance, that difficult relationship, that uh, difficult person. 
How do we make sense of all of that? Well, you make sense of that by going back to what God has said, by going back to his word. And so, for example, what has he said about suffering? James 1, 2-4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Like I said, I think this is going to be the challenge for us during this COVID season, which is are we approaching God? Are we uh, coming before him and worship of him with reverence and awe? Are we humble and expectant and ready to listen, even if we're by ourselves in the comforts of our own homes? That's not all the preacher says. He warns us not just against spiritual apathy, but also against spiritual pride. Because he knows that even when our doctrine, even when our view of God might be theologically correct, the reality is that the things that we do often don't match up with the things that we say. And that leads us to our second point, which is say less. Okay, say less. And just to clarify, um, when, I, when I say say less, I'm not just talking about frequency. I'm not just talking about the amounts of words that come out of your mouth. Okay, um, so small group leaders, you, you can relax. Don't worry. What the preacher is talking about here is a careful thoughtfulness. He's talking about this simplicity and this sincerity to our words. He's saying, don't waste your words. Say what you actually mean. Look at verse 4. He says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And so in these verses, the preacher is focusing on uh, one specific form of hasty speech. Right? That hasty speech is kind of the general idea, but here's a more specific version of that, which is making vows. And vows, they were pretty common, um, even though they weren't commanded, actually, but they were pretty common in Old Testament worship. And someone would promise God something. They would say, like, I'm going to consecrate my this sacrifice or this money uh, if God answered my prayer. Right? And maybe people still do that nowadays. Right? They say, God, like, I'll go on missions if you, like, give me a wife or whatever. Like, we, we do that with God too in our prayer requests. And the preacher says, if you're going to do something like that, then make sure that you follow through with it. Otherwise, don't say it at all. Right? You don't want to have to tell the messenger. The messenger is the person who witnessed your vow. Uh, you don't have to tell the messenger that it was a mistake, that you actually didn't mean it. Uh, one person put it like this, and I think this is just good life advice in general. Uh, they said, better to remain silent and be, and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. So let me ask you this. When you read those verses, what is God most concerned about? It's not the vow itself. It's not even the thing that was promised, right? God's not just like waiting to cash in, right? He's not just waiting for the thing that you promised. How do we know that? Well, verse 5, it says it's better that you don't vow at all. What is God most concerned about? He's most concerned about our character. He cares most about the kind of people that we are rather than the things that we say. 
And so this passage asks us, do those things match up, right? Are your words and your life consistent? Do you really say what you mean and do you do what you say? And for you guys, um, as college students, think about your commitments. Right? Are you someone that can be trusted to follow through with them? Or are you flaky? Preacher says it's better to say less and to let your actions and character speak. And I think there's a lot of applications of this, but I want to focus specifically on two. Okay, I think two ways that we can let our, our mouths lead us into sin when we're hasty with our speech. Uh, the first one is uh, with other people's sin. Okay, when we don't guard our mouths when we talk about other people's sin. Now to be clear, as the church, I do want to say that we must talk about sin. Okay, we do need to confess our sins to one another. We need to rebuke one another when necessary. What I'm talking about here is a temptation to talk about other people's sin pridefully and thoughtlessly and carelessly. What we do is we talk ourselves up by talking others down. We say things like, oh, I can't believe this person would do this or that, or like, I would never, or how could they, you know, so-and-so. And this is what the Pharisee did in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. Uh, the, the Pharisees like, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like that tax collector standing over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And just for myself, one, one recent example of this uh, from my own life was, was with seeing what other people at Lighthouse would post on social media about the election. And maybe you guys can relate to this with not necessarily people at Lighthouse, but other people in your life. But like, I feel like in the past few weeks, I've, like, I've just discovered this whole other side of people from church that I've just never known before, right? And I think what makes it worse is that like, a lot of these people I just don't get to interact with anymore. And so like, that's, that's who they are now in my mind. And I think I've seen that spill over into my words. Like, I'll comment just to Brie, like, did you see what so-and-so posted on Facebook? I can't believe you know, they like, believe this. I can't believe they buy into that. And I'm not saying that, you know, like other people holding a specific political opinion is uh, is sinful, but I have seen my own tendency to be rash with the things that I say. That I can so easily promise God or others that I'll do this, or on the flip side, that I won't do this, right? And yet there are areas of my life where there is this inconsistency. And so even as I was prepping this message, I like that came to mind, and so I had to stop and I had to, to confess and repent of that. So how can we grow in talking about sin? Well, one, I would say, take the counselor training class. But two, uh, listen to what Matthew 7, 3 to 5 says. Right? It's the, the passage with uh, the log in your eye. It says, Jesus says, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And don't miss this part because it's important. Then, right, this is the purpose, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See what that passage is asking us? Do you see your own sin first? But also, do you recognize the care and the precision that is required to remove a speck from your brother's eye? And what does that care look like? I think one way that looks like is you talk about your own sin first before you talk about other sin. You affirm the good and the hard before you bring up the bad in someone else's life. You learn to lead with questions and encouragement rather than answers and your own advice. I mean, all of this has to do with being careful about our words, specifically when we talk about other people's sin. And then second application is uh, 
the right answers. Okay, we'll call it the right answers. In Matthew 6, 7 and 8, uh, Jesus says that when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Okay, so these people, what they were doing is they just kind of put words together. They were hoping that if it was theolo- theologically correct or if it was, uh, quote unquote, the right answer or the words that they thought God wanted to hear, that their, their, their prayers would be effective. Right. Like that would be just the magic bullet to, to getting their prayers answered. And we do that, too, don't we? And in fact, I think a lot of us are really good at it. Right? We think to ourselves, what does God or what do others want to hear rather than what is actually meaningful, what is actually honest and true about myself? I've had some opportunities to sit in on some of the, the Beacon small groups, and I just want to encourage you guys. Like I've been really blessed by seeing your guys' thoughtfulness uh, in thinking through what these messages mean for your life. I, I think you guys do a good job of being humble, of being honest, and you're sharing with one another. Uh, but I, I bring up small groups, and I mean, you can expand it to our conversations with fellow believers, because these are often, I think, the context where we do what the preacher talks about here, where like we just give the right answers. And we say things like, I know I should do this, or I think I'm going to try this. Then the rest of the week comes along and we never follow through. And so how can we make our words count in small groups uh, or in these kinds of conversations with other believers? Well, let me give you just four quick encouragements. Uh, real practical. One, I'd say be humble. What we just talked about, right? Are you aware of your own sin and weaknesses? Are you aware of your need for grace before you are aware of the same for others? Are you willing to listen? Um, Or even more than that, do you take initiative uh, in inviting your other small group members to speak into your life? Do you ask for their counsel and even their correction if necessary? Okay, so be humble. Second, I would say be honest. Tell the truth about yourself rather than thinking in terms of what's the right answer and what's the wrong answer. These, These questions that we prepare each week They're meant for you to think about your own life. There's no right answers to them. And so share about what's really happening in your life. Three, I would say be personal. All of us have different strengths, weaknesses, and struggles. We all are uh, kind of have this different webs of relationships. We have different circumstances. And so what does it look like for you specifically in your circumstances, in your relationships? Don't answer for like that other person that you have in mind. Don't answer for some like hypothetical, generic Christian. Answer for what that looks like in your own life. And you know what? That, that helps the rest of us too. Even if we can't totally relate, that's helpful for the rest of us still. And then last, I would say be specific. Um, David Pallison, he once said something along the lines of, uh, life takes place in specifics, not generalities. Okay, life takes place in specifics, not generalities. Even in our own personal lives, which we just talked about, there are so many different facets of our life. Right? And so when we are specific, that's helpful for us because we can identify specific steps that we can take in repentance. Okay, uh, So be specific. Now, what is it that trains us to, to share in this way? Like, What is it that, that allows us and frees us to speak humbly and honestly about ourselves rather than rashly and pridefully. Oh, it's the gospel. In the gospel, we learn a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves. 
I think the Lord's Prayer is a great example of this. Uh, It's a simplicity of words. We approach God intimately as both Father, uh, but still God in heaven, right? God who is removed from us. The gospel is what cures us of our uh, hypocrisy and pretension on one hand, but it also cures us of apprehension on the other hand. As Hebrews 10 says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And so let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The gospel teaches us that rather than approach God with this attitude of what I will do for him, the gospel message is about what God has already done for us. Psalm 66, 16, it says, Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell you of what he has done for my soul. That is, that is what someone who, is, who knows the gospel says. All right, let me tell you what God has done for me. In verses 3 and 7, um, we get a, a pair of Proverbs. We're, we're going to bring this to a close. We get a pair of Proverbs that I think do a good job of summarizing the big idea of this passage for us. I know those verses may be a little bit confusing, but the common theme there is uh, overproduction. Okay, it's, it's busyness, overwork. And what the preacher is saying is that too much work leads to dreams. Too much work leads to restlessness and sleeplessness. Okay, and in the same way, too many words leads to rashness. Too many words leads to um, saying something dumb, and therefore that leads to judgment. Okay, that's what these verses are saying. And so guard your steps when you enter the house of God. God wants your sincerity, your simplicity, rather than your spiritual speech. Psalm 46.10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. Eugene Peterson, he puts it better than I can. He says, It is necessary, if we are going to truly live a Christian life, to return to square one and adore God and listen to God. Given our sin-damaged memories that render us vulnerable to every latest edition of journalistic spirituality, spirituality, daily reorientation in the truth revealed in Jesus and attested in scripture is required. And given our ancient predisposition for reducing every scrap of divine revelation that we come across into a piece of moral or spiritual technology that we can use to get on in the world and eventually to get on without God, a daily return to a condition of not knowing and non-achievement is required. Right? A, con- a daily return to a condition of not knowing and non-achievement is required. So this passage teaches us that you can slow down, listen more, say less, fear God. God, we thank you that um, we get passages like this which uh, just shut our mouths Um, for lack of better words, and and cause us to be still and remind us of our place before you, that we are here on earth and you are there in heaven and you are so much greater than us and you uh, demand um, just a reverence as we come before you. God, we thank you that uh, in the gospel that that's that's not all you are to us, that you do invite us to know you intimately as our Father, God, we know that you still call us to um, just a careful, carefulness, careful thought in our words, in our conduct in this life. And so teach us, Lord, um, what that looks like, especially during this season. Um, there's just so many distractions, so many unique circumstances where we can take worship of you for granted. And so help us to just have a, a right view of you.
to have a right view of ourselves and to come before you, um, fearing you, God, and, and being careful with our words. We thank you, God. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.